Suing message was referred to as English. It was not always spoken like this. This just sounds cooler. The language is based upon a 26-letter alphabet consisting of these letters. A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I, J, K, L, M, N, O, P, Q, R, S, T, U, V, W, X, Y, Z. If you have found this file and you are able to hear these words, there is a good chance that you have the capability to decipher what the words mean. Just as we were able to decode hieroglyphics from centuries past during our existence, you will hopefully be able to do the same and avoid our fate. By hiding this drive deep inside rocky caverns, we aim to prolong its lifespan in the hope that it would be found. That you have not only found it, but also developed corresponding technology to allow it to function means that you are an extremely advanced society. We have no way of knowing how many intelligent societies came and failed before us. We were unable to discover any evidence of their existence. Perhaps they too hid their data within rocks, and we just weren't intelligent enough to know where to find it. This drive was equipped with a counter that has increased by one digit for every completed revolution around the sun since our disappearance. So you will know how long we have been gone. While our society flourished, before we knew any of the meaning of the universe or even what life itself might be, there were many conversations. To give you an idea of ourselves, this is one of those conversations. I want to hear more about the bus. Because <laughs> I think I, I... Well, first of all, Jeremy Ross, I don't know if you're familiar with him, but he huh. uh, listens to this show and he said, you got to get Ben on... So it, was, it, had, it had been a bit of time for me to track okay. down how to get in touch with you. Yeah, I'm yeah. glad we finally did and we're making it happen. And then I, I think I told you in the email, like I looked at Instagram and thought you were just like a photographer and yeah. then kind of digging in further and finding like all the interests that you have. It's pretty fascinating. I yeah. Mean, like, I mean, really, my career has been pretty, pretty weird. You know, it's yeah. allowed me to go to a lot of fun places and, but, and you don't seem old enough to have done all those different things either. Yeah. I mean, that's probably, that's part of the reason why I grew out a beard. Cause when I was doing like international sales in, in Japan and South Korea and stuff like that, it's a very, uh, senior seniority based structure, you know? So if the, you're, if you don't appear to be old enough, then they won't take you seriously so yeah you know i have a baby face so it was like i had to grow out the beard to just like gain an extra two years of age so people would listen to me when i'm like hey you could put this in your mazda vehicles or you know your spaceships or whatever and they'd be like oh okay we'll take him seriously now that he looks older (laughs) (laughs) good thing he's got that old beard yeah yeah exactly were you like uh, one of those kids that went to college at like 15 or 16 or something like that no not not at all uh i just went to uh the university of central florida at your standard time went there for four years but uh i had a background in computer science Mm -hmm. so i was programming but when i was programming it was like one of those things that when you're in college you kind of realize that you're not the best at right Mm -hmm. like i could see other people programming better but i could understand the concepts around it and how to shift them into making something as opposed to the production end it was more on the design and the organization so does that come end. from because people do this all the time with like i have an app idea for is it like seeing the 
practicality of, okay, well, that's great code, but what are you going to mm-hmm. use it for? Oh, I'll, I'll bet you could implement that into this. Is that kind of the design thing? It's kind of that, and it's kind of like a also identifying and recognizing like where future trends are going. Because mm-hmm. an app, you can build an app pretty quickly and release it. So if you think about that, you're pretty much building for the here and now. A lot of the stuff that I've worked on in the past, either vehicles like for Mazda or Jaguar Land Rover or BMW or spaceships for NASA programs or Virgin Galactic spaceships or different fighter jets, you know, those things take like in the short term, two years, long term, a decade before yeah. they're released. So in a lot of those, you have to understand where the te- where the technology and trends are going for when it's released. That way you're going to have it released at just the right time in its technology life cycle. So are you on the ground floor of stuff where like, oh, you're not going to believe what cars are doing in 10 years because I put the seeds in literally 10 years ago. Yeah. I mean, oddly enough, uh, just like two months ago or so, I saw where BMW stole my dashboard idea. Really? Yeah. They totally, they totally nicked it and I'm not worried about it. It's just like, man, I wish they, I would have known that they were doing it while they were doing it because it would have bolstered my own (laughs) self-confidence that I was doing the right thing. Yeah. You know, so uh, I was selling a toolkit that's used to make all the touchscreen technology in cars, like the dashboard displays, wherever you see a screen in a car. Mm -hmm. I was going around selling that technology and then actually going to the different auto manufacturers and showing them how to do it. So I, uh, at the time, I designed a... Wait, like, can we... Can yeah. <laughs> that in itself is such a bizarre, like, you're showing yeah. up with a prototype and like, is it pr- just yours? You have a patent on it, like a proprietary no, thing or... No, it was just like, I knew the capabilities of the tool and I knew like what type of dashboard I wanted to make because I was, you know, I'm a car guy. I had like, at the time I had some Mazda Miatas that I was building up and taking to the racetrack and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I always just wanted a way to practice with the tool that I was working with and selling and showing to people. So, so how do you get these meetings? You just call up Chevrolet? Well, kind of to some extent. I mean, what I would do is uh, at the end of my time at this company that was building this tool was I was like, okay, if I want to make my own dashboard. And we had like these screens and my goal was like, I'm going to put it like in my car, like actually make a whole new digital dash in my car. So I got the tools to In make. a Miata? Not the Miata. At the time it was a Subaru Legacy GT wagon. So like okay. a big, you know, yeah. loud, obnoxious Subaru. So, uh, so I got, I actually like recorded me driving around the neighborhood and then, uh, I designed like what the layout would be, you know, like how I wanted the gauges to appear and how at the time the automakers really wanted 3D stuff inside the dashboard. They're like, we want to do 3D gauges. And and for the longest time, the only thing that we ever saw in cars, and you kind of see that in cars released today, is there's a lot of what I call flappy car. And flappy cars, like they're like, we want to do 3D. So they do like, they always, every single auto manufacturer, when they're like, we want to do 3D in a car, the first thing they always do is make a 3D version of the car that you can spin around inside the little dashboard (laughs) for some reason. And usually the doors open and close when the doors open and close to look like the car is flapping, you know, and flying around. So I want to do like, what would be the next version of now that we've gotten beyond flappy car, how would you put 3D in, yeah. a, in a dashboard display? Mm-hmm. So I came up with this layout that was like nice and widescreen. And I, and I envisioned kind of taking aerospace gauges because we did a lot of aerospace work at the time. So like aerospace focuses on giving you pertinent information at the right time. So if you're thinking about like you're flying a Cessna, the, one of the first things they teach you in flight school is how to scan all the gauges and just make sure everything's okay. You went to flight school? 
Well, so I had to, uh, like not necessarily went to flight school, but I was working with the military on a bunch of flight simulators. So I had a lot of seat time in flight simulators to make the flight simulators either at, uh, you know, there's a big station out at Huntsville that I worked at for the helicopters. And then my sister ended up, uh, she was in the Naval Academy and ended up flying helicopters for the Navy. So uh, for there was for a time that I could fly a helicopter better than my sister before she (laughs) finished out her flight school training. Uh, so when we were looking at the car display, I wanted it not to have someone scan the gauges, but to give them the right information at the right time. So if you're in sport mode or just a regular driving mode, and I also designed it for the future so that you could adapt it for when things become autonomous. How would that autonomous mode change? And you keep kind of with your hands sort of... Yeah, imagine like a big sweeping dashboard right, like okay. out in front of you. just it's like not semicircular, but it's a little concave. Yeah, it's, it's like a big ultra wide screen essentially right so uh how can those gauges appear and then in this model that i made they appeared and then they could rotate out of the display Um, and when i was working at jaguar land rover a lot of the things that we discovered and went into was uh, what we call like a digital detox right we're now at the point where we're saturated with information so your car is likely going to be like your zen space Mm -hmm. of you know that's kind of what it is now right i mean you drive around in la your car is your zen space so how do we reduce the information on the screen so that it's only showing you like speed and that's it because that's all you really need to do. And is it meant to be intuitive in a way where like the moment it seems like the person would want to know like, oh man, I'm going really fast. I wonder what my oil pressure is. It it would come out to them, kind of show them and then recede into the background. Definitely. So it was all about like how we could, the, the, the majority of my design was how we can bring information to the user at the right time and then gracefully faded away to minimize the amount of information displayed to the user. So I designed this dashboard concept. We built it and we took it to all the automotive trade shows to like show them what it was. I demoed it at a a number of companies. Um, Eventually, you know, like that's, a lot of the work that got me into Jaguar Land Rover to work there on, and it's on projects for the two years. Totally the, this, the screen is totally real. And then just this past three months ago, the new BMW M8, their flagship eight series car, I looked at their dashboard and I was just like, oh man, that's the exact orient. You know, like, of course, this, the, what I call, um, you know, the front end visual graphics are different because I didn't style it for BMW. It was much more generic. Yeah. But the interactions, the way that things move, the placement of the information, the hierarchy of it. I mean, it's just like copy, paste, copy, paste, copy, paste, (laughs) copy, paste, and then slap a BMW logo on top. And I was just like, well, that's cool because when I was at Jaguar Land Rover, people were like, well, have you designed a dashboard before? And I was like, well, no, I worked with all these companies. Little did I know at the time I could have just been like, yeah, BMW right now is stealing my (laughs) ideas and putting it in their most flagship model. (laughs) (laughs) have you seen i think it's spark of genius maybe flash of genius i I haven't seen that greg kinnear uh the windshield wipers that would only go once oh yeah i know what you're talking about yeah right he's a the intermittent wipers yeah yeah. and he's like an electrical engineer and he spends the rest of his life fighting all the giant auto manufacturers because they just stole it they just stole his idea blatantly and he sees it debuted at a car show how much time are you, you putting in personally just with code and writing it so that the functionality is, you know, it's capable of showing them what it would do? I mean, that one in particular only took about three months because it wasn't, it wasn't, it was a demo. It wasn't a demo form. So knowing the tool and working in it for about five years, it was like, I can crank, th- we can crank this out in three months. I have an artist over here that can do the 3D models, animations. I've got an, another guy that's going to assist me on writing the code. We can publish it out 
on a platform. So that was like three months to create the entire dashboard display. And we actually hooked it up to like virtual racing simulator. So you could drive around and actually see it. So it would respond to like gas pedal goes down. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So that was about like three months. I I really like projects that are like three months to get a concept out. That's like the sweet spot (laughs) of like, I have an idea. How can we make it in there? Let's jam it in there. Does it prove that it does what we want it to do? Great. Okay. Let's turn that into like a productionized thing that we want to do. And then when you say we, I'm getting the sense now that's that group you just mentioned of kind of your mercenaries for hire of like, I need this guy and this guy and this guy, but it's not like you're working for a company and then taking it to the car show. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's all over the place. So, I mean, with my career I've done, uh, I started out at this company that was making this toolkit and it's called GL studio. And it was pretty much like Photoshop, except it generates code that you can put into aircraft and vehicles and all sorts of stuff. Nice. So I started working there in their support group, you know, helping people integrate this tool into their vehicle programs And then I started to get in the sales end of it because that was a little bit more creative for me, like finding, listening to someone at Chrysler say, we want to introduce these features. And I would go, oh man, I can think of different ways to solve that problem. And then showing them the problem, uh, the solution for it. And then I, at that same company, I went and did business development because this company also made what are called virtual maintenance trainers, which are, the best way to describe it is imagine an F-18, right? Big, huge military aircraft costs about a billion dollars to buy an F-18, right? It's parked out on a flight line. They fly it. They do these huge aerial maneuvers and they park it again. And then someone needs to maintain them. The person maintaining them is typically an 18-year-old teenager directly (laughs) out of high school, right? Who went into the Air Force maintenance school. Yeah. And that 18-year-old doesn't want to read a book to learn how to uh, maintain an aircraft. They're used to video games. They're used to playing Call of Duty. Yeah. So we made a 3D version of those aircrafts that you could take apart with the real rules that would apply in real life. Like you have to unscrew the screws to open up the door and remove the harness and plug in a multimeter. And that was all in a 3D space. It's dangerous for them to be giving you relatively accurate blueprints. (laughs) (laughs) So we we did have a, a lot of export restrictions on those. So like we did it, we did it for the F-18, 16, F-35, Chinooks, uh, the UH-72, which was a big program that I did, and Abrams Tank, all sorts of stuff. But we would have different release versions. Like, we would dumb down the system that we could demo out to people. Mm-hmm. Um, because in the case of, like, a fighter jet, right, we'd work with Boeing to make sure that we got the CAD data from the aircraft, the exact geometry of how they're building it. Yeah. We build up all the constraints for disassembling it and putting it back together. And that would follow their entire maintenance procedure manual, which is thousands of pages long. And then we would release versions of it for demos that would just be like, here's where you can hook up the electrical cart, you know, and like, <laughs> and like turn the switch on. And that's about it. And those were the releases that we could do around the world. And the reason why we're able to show those around the world is because Boeing also sells those aircraft around the world. So that was some things that I was doing was I was looking online to see like, what country is buying F-18s today? Like that was a legitimate Google search I was uh-huh. doing. Like what country is buying F-18s. And then you go, oh, Chile wants to buy F-18s. And you go down to the to the defense show in Chile, which is at the Air Force, <laughs> you know, which is at their runway. And they're like flying F-18s overhead while you're trying to sell to the maintenance mechanics, like how they would maintain the F-18. Or, you know, I did that in Israel and South Korea and Japan. And is it language specific or is it mostly just visual? Uh, it really doesn't depend too much on the language. And that's kind of nice that it gets over the language barrier because you're seeing the vehicle in its 3D space, right? Like 
the aircraft won't turn on the same way whether you know Japanese or English. Yeah. Right? So, and the way to diagnose what's wrong with it is the same way in Japanese or English. So, a lot of that is just translating text to different markets because the interactivity and probing things to figure out how stuff is or isn't working is the same regardless of language. That makes sense. I still get a little hung up on, in my mind, it's you showing up, guy in a van, yeah. Like just dress very casually, like, can I get those uh, F-18 blueprints? And they go, yeah, yeah, the guy seems okay. And you leave. And then <laughs> I just feel like there would have to be like psychological evaluations and very like uh, a briefcase handcuffed to a wrist and let's meet at this location. And yeah, so it's not quite that secure. I mean, that's interesting. You know, when you think about like what the government wants to keep secret, it's oftentimes what you wouldn't expect. Mm-hmm. So. When I was still in college, I had an internship at Lockheed Martin where I was working on the Hellfire missile. So that's the missile you see that comes off of an Apache helicopter and hits tanks to destroy them, right? Mm-hmm. Like the first Iraq war, Hellfire missiles were used everywhere. It's a little later laser-guided rocket. And that was a classified program. But a, a majority of the stuff that was really classified about it uh, that they really wanted to keep secret wasn't necessarily the code that you were writing but specifically like the details of the weapon. So as an example, one of the most classified secrets on that program is just how to properly store them, right? Because you're storing a bomb, right? Like so so the U.S. government wants to be the best at storing them and Mm -hmm. putting them in safe places. The reason being, if you sell that, because they sell that missile to any a number of other countries, mm-hmm. you want to keep that information classified so that no, the number of other countries that buy them will store them in a way that you could then destroy them if you need to, you oh, know, in the future, yeah, yeah. right? So, you want to think about, like, bigger picture, like, when you think about, like, how the government keeps secrets. The government's really good at keeping secrets for, like... 50 years in the future, you know, they're really good at designing things like that. So in some of those cases, yes, there was a lot of secretive and and classified information coming in and out. But for these maintenance trainers, a lot of it really is just how would you maintain like an, uh, you know, a Delta aircraft and how would you just apply those same rules to an F-18? And there's Mm -hmm. nothing specific. It's just like the plug is there on the Delta aircraft. The plug is here on the F-18. You know, that's not, that's not going to kill anybody or destroy a world. Uh, but, but what they would keep more classified is like, how do you arm the missiles? You know, and that's like a couple set of procedures (laughs) and switches and stuff like that. I still think though, that it would be, I mean, obviously you have the blueprints, Mm -hmm. but if you've played the game, you're there at the trade show, say you're in Chile and then it lands and everyone gathers around and then they point to you and go, all right, prove that your video game essentially yeah. works. And you go over and like, yep, here you go. Oh, I've done that. Really? It's great. It's really cool. <laughs> I, I did a specific example with a Chinook helicopter. It was really fun because the Chinook's massive. You know, that's the two rotor, big, huge helicopter. Like cars. That yeah, rotor. exactly. Okay. So we had a, a maintenance trainer that could take apart the Chinook. And one of the real cool things about that aircraft is there's these big metal linkages that's that goes throughout it to adjust both of those huge propellers at the same time. Yeah. The front and the back one. If you want to go forward, the front blade have to tip a certain way the back blades have to tip a certain way and the swash blades have to move and it's like all this complex linkages across this giant double-decker school bus sized (laughs) aircraft right and uh so what i would do is if is if someone was familiar with that aircraft i would go up to it and i would go uh, you know, they'd be like, what do you got? And I go, well, we've got this virtual trainer that shows how it works. And I'm like, well, show me what it can do. And I'm like, well, see, you can open up the door here and it looks just like the door inside the helicopter. And they go, cool. Yes, it looks exactly the same. Where you get them really excited is when you show them something that they weren't expecting. And what they weren't expecting was I go, hey, 
How hard is it for you to train your maintenance technicians on how this complex linkages works with the swash blades and the rotors? And how many times do people mess that up or just feel like it's a weird, mysterious box that they don't even, they're fearful of touching? Mm -hmm. And they go, yeah, everyone's fearful of touching it. And I go, okay. And you press a button on this thing. And what it did was it turned the entire helicopter transparent, but only showed those linkages in a wireframe view. So then you could immediately move the joystick and see this linkage goes down, moves this way. This linkage goes down, moves this way. This linkage moves down. And it goes this way. This and it and it went throughout the entire aircraft mm-hmm. to show how that one movement of the flight control stick would affect all the linkages of the aircraft. And they go, "Oh man, that's what we've been trying to teach students for you know decades, and it's really hard. And we have these things that can't do it, and that would solve the immediate problem that we have." And so just whip out a checkbook immediately. I mean, it takes a while to whip out, you know, a million dollar, five million dollar check, but you know, so but it, the 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 feeling was the same, and that was really the part that that I've liked the most throughout all the things that I've done, isn't necessarily building the things, but it's going to where people have challenges and having all of my really cool background of science and technology and design and then being able to li- really actually sit there and just listen to what they feel is the challenge let the brain fire and then you go okay i heard that you said like your biggest challenge is on training aircraft maintenance mechanics but what i heard is your biggest challenge is just specifically on this little linkage that shows all the rotor blades working yeah. together and they go yes that's exactly what we want and i go great well you don't need the whole thing you just need this and we can just give you that and, and we can parcel it out yeah we could parcel it out and then they would come back and go okay now that we solved that problem and i go yeah now that you solve that problem i know your next problem is this one you want us to fix that problem and they go yeah because the last one worked great <laughs> you know and you just kind of build it up incrementally over time and that that forms such a better relationship with people because you're actually solving the problem that they need instead of just saying like buy the millions of dollar thing we yeah. can we can kind of go into it one by one is it a hard world to be altruistic in i mean you know people i of the main theme in some of the iron man movies yeah. is like you know your your defense business can get compromised you you can help the bad guys so to speak yeah but, but what you're doing can't really be applied to i don't know what you would consider like a genuinely harmless endeavor maybe maybe solar panels for a third world country or you know some sort of infrastructure thing but I don't even know if that's accurate, but do those factors play into this? I mean, absolutely. Uh, The the first job that I had, you know, doing these Hellfire missiles was, uh, you know, I was young and I kind of got into it and I was like, yeah, sure. You know, why not? You just make a missile. And I mean, granted, your days at work were pretty cool. You're carrying like a missile down a hallway and you're seeing slow motion videos (laughs) of stuff blowing up. It's like expensive Mythbusters, essentially. Mm -hmm. Right. And that one, when I was at that job, uh, they had a guy come in one day that was... You know, he was high up in the army and he came in just to give like an uplifting speech to the team. And he was just like, these missiles are the greatest. You know, we shoot them through a window and they hit the target every single time. And, you know, we have this many confirmed kills. And like there were people in administrative roles at that meeting, just like white knuckling their table. <laughs> like, oh, man, I knew we were being the missiles, but I never really had to see like that was the yeah. the result of it. Right. So I, I kind of got an early vantage point of like the first thing that I worked on directly did hurt people and i'm now at a point where um in my career it's funny that you mentioned it because like in my career right now i'm specifically moving away from all the things that could potentially harm and hurt people so i kind of like went recently over the past couple months on really like kind of it's almost like a spiritual journey right like it was just like what would happen if you take three months and just like go off the internet and focus on yourself and your self-improvement and your own meditation and things like that Mm -hmm. and what it really came down to for me at least was 
previously I was trying to make my, my life and everything more positive by interjecting little steps here and there, right? Like say more positive words, more positive life affirmations, you know, like mm-hmm. do this, do that, do the other thing. And ultimately what it came down to was when I had the opportunity to really take a step back, it was like, man, the little things are great, but what if I did it from the top of the pyramid down, right? Like just saying like, I don't want to do stuff that has any possibility of hurting people. Just like, let's just X all that out, right? Yeah. Just Let's just remove it and just do everything from a state of helping people, helping yourself, encouraging self-help and exploration in others. And that, I'll tell you what, that is a huge, huge major shift. So, I guess that's like answering your question of like, yeah, that is a problem. And my answer is just go completely the other way, <laughs> you know, like take some steps back, realize it and just feel comfortable going the complete other way, you know, yeah. just go. go but it's also like you're you ahead of that question. You're doing it, you know, you, you'd already, right. and even when we emailed about this show, you said you'd cut out alcohol for the year. Yeah. That's a, a lot. Of I mean, it's not perfectly cut out, but it's definitely just like an instinctive choice, you know, yeah. like, am I just drinking alcohol because that's what everyone else is doing or do I just want a beer right now you yeah, know and, yeah. and and even just shifting that and making that more a practice of a question that you're asking yourself allows you to ask yourself a whole range of questions because if you're out at a bar with your friends and you're able to ask yourself do I really want alcohol right like mm-hmm. that's this that's the situation with a lot of peer pressure and all that kind of stuff wrapped up into it if you can practice that that uh, element of asking yourself questions and answering them honestly you can apply them to all sorts of other things do i want this job do i want to work with this person do i want to be involved on this project do you know and you can really think about it your instagram has a lot of that uh involved I mean, by that by that i mean the that you're aware of it that you're sort of searching and also doing at the same time and, and right. you know i'm i'm more from the comedy world so everyone's very cynical and so when people are sharing or that kind of stuff there's kind of a oh boy but i do like it i think we all do especially living right. in la it's common here you know right. if you were to hey i'm gonna go barefoot for a while if you lived in maybe a place where why are you doing that yeah. Just something as simple as that. Like, I don't know. I just want to feel the earth under my feet yeah. and see what that's like. Yeah. Just, you know, I, I know even being from where I'm in Northern Nevada, like there, there's definitely like you get scoffed at. And right. so and when you're in a place where you're free to do that and you can really explore it and a big thing in yours, especially with photography is like the moment sort of, and people say that all the time, like yeah. present, be present yeah. in the present. But it seems like you're really attuned to that in maybe a different way. I, th- I think really the first step in doing that, I love people, I love all the stories of people going on those types of journeys, you know, being like, I made this choice to do yeah, something I'm yeah. like, yeah, that doesn't hurt anybody. It's not hurting yourself. Go for it and tell me how it, how it went. You know, I'm <laughs> yeah. super excited to see what, see what happens with it. And I think uh, for me, what I've identified is the, the real thing that people use as a starting off point is just feel more comfortable with yourself when you find out that you do like something and you do enjoy something. Yeah. And that comes down to a lot of practices, you know, either through meditation or whatever element you want to go down to, but ultimately it comes down to you're living your life day to day and you, everyone has these moments where you're just like, I feel good. I feel the right level of hydrated. I feel the right level of happiness. I feel the right level of love for myself and for others out in the world. I feel connected to my community. And typically those moments when you feel that good are really fleeting, you yeah. know, like it's very often that people go, yeah, I feel good. Checkbox, you know, <laughs> and like we don't think about it. Yeah. Right. So it's the first step, I think, in, in discovering that you want to just not wear shoes for a month and, and walk around without shoes is you is you have to be confident enough that when you're walking around without shoes multiple times a week and you're like, man, I always feel good when I walk without shoes, you know, mm-hmm. I know what that person's going to feel. They're going to feel 
but I also feel weird because people look at me or they judge me or whatever. And ultimately what they need to do is say, no, I am confident that myself feeling good without shoes is more important than myself feeling stigmatized by someone looking at me weird for not wearing shoes. Yep. And then once they do that, then they can find any number of ways that they can feel good in their life. You know, yes, not wearing shoes, but also, you know, maybe doing something else or doing the next thing. And it's really just about building up that own internal confidence that you know your body and yourself best and you're going to find those ways that that helps to make yourself better which you brought up the comedy community in LA that's something really hard to do in the comedy community in LA because what's <laughs> the first thing that someone in the comedy community is going to do when they decide not to wear shoes right they're going to say hey I don't want to wear shoes they're going to do it out of a genuine place because they feel good about it and they think it would be fun and interesting or whatever then they're going to do that practice and then they're going to go down to like the best fish tacos in Encinita and they're going to do a little stand-up performance over there where they're going to get up and they're going to go, so I stopped wearing shoes and look how <laughs> weird I am and look how goofy and I am and look at how weird people are looking at me for it. And they're going to do it in a self-deprecating manner instead yeah. of being confident and saying like, instead of just going up there and be like, I didn't wear shoes and I felt great and my soul's got harder and I could feel connected to the earth and not beat themselves up about it. Yeah. And you got to really take it from that holistic approach, right? You can't just say, I'm going to walk around wherever I am and not wear shoes. And then at, at 7 p.m. on Tuesday nights, I'm going to shit on myself for, for doing that, <laughs> right? You can't quite do that. You have yeah. to say, if you're making that choice to do it out of betterment, then don't beat yourself up in any way for, for doing yeah. it because well, that seeks just, in, you know? Yeah, it has to be you. I mean, if you do it for well and who knows maybe i'm putting too many rules on it but if you're doing it for like some sort of ulterior motive like this might further my now now that takes away from it you're really not doing it to better yourself at least not in the truest form or i mean i think if if you know that you're going to do it to better your career then just take ownership of it that you're doing it to better your career yes i tried this out it worked for me personally but career-wise i'm gonna play with it in the career space (laughs) of my life you know and that's okay too but just take ownership of it and don't beat yourself up for saying i put not wearing shoes in the career bucket you know (laughs) and then making decisions around that then that's fine yeah I remember getting in this van at the end of a like a shoot day, and one of the guy who was a driver was kind of an old like New York kind of teamster guy. Yeah, yeah. And everyone's just kind of tired. Everyone's just, no one's really talking, and he's going like, "Ah, you got big weekend plans? I'm gonna have some beers." And then no one says anything, and then he sort of catches himself and goes, "Regular beers, regular beers, like Miller Lite stuff like that." I'm not better than anybody. And it always stuck with me, like, no one cared at all. If yeah. you like the f- foofiest sort of, like, yeah. whatever, craft right. beer you could get your hands No one cared. But there was that feeling of, like, I just, I might step outside the bounds of the herd a little bit. And I right. want them to know I'm right in there with you. Right. And so I think that when you talked about whatever you decide to get better at, you know, and focusing on yourself mm-hmm. and what you, what you really like, I think maybe there are people get afraid of that because they go, what if I just really like reality TV and laying on the couch and blah, blah, and gossip and things like that. And all these things that seem to be very hurtful to the psyche. Yeah. There might be people who go, that's me. That's what I like. Right. And then you go, well, I can't do that because that's frowned upon by the herd. Yeah. I think for me, all I would do is just encourage people to really give yourself an opportunity to look at yourself reflectively without that outside fear of judgment. 
Because I think ultimately, if you are the one that feels confident in yourself, then you would be ultimately the one that could look at it and understand, does watching reality TV really hurt me or does it fulfill a lot of things that I want right now and allow me to go out into my life and live a better life? Yeah. And if the answer is it helps me go out in my life and live a better life, then just, yeah, then great. You've made the right decision. But if you're saying like, it lets me go out and live my life, but I still feel that it hurts me a little bit, then just... Use that as a as a crack in a doorway to dive in there and like really answer that question internally, right? Like if yeah. you feel wishy washy on the answer, then you probably need to think about it a little <laughs> bit more. You know, like just dive in there a little bit more and feel about it. There's yeah. like that. There's that life philosophy. I can't remember who exactly said it at this point in time, but it's the hell yes life mentality, right? It's like Mm -hmm. you either have an answer that's hell yes or everything else is no, Mm -hmm. right? Like don't do anything that's maybe, don't do anything that's, uh, if it's hell yes, go do it. If it's not, then then don't. (laughs) So that's, I guess that's kind of what I'm getting at. It's like if you feel like you don't feel confident in your answer, then there's probably something there that that would be nice to explore for a little bit, you know? (laughs) You strike me as someone that is good at eliminating bad habits. You know, I think a lot of people would go, oh yeah, I want to implement a design, get a team together, work on it aggressively, market it and try to distribute it somewhere. And they go, maybe next week, you know, like I, and then whatever they're doing, they're playing video games. They're doing something that is just that hurdle. But so all the things that you've done, I think people that are, that have those blocks go, oh, well, that's genetic. People yeah. are just like, they're steamships and they just zoom ahead. Yeah. But no one really is, I, I, I think. Oh, yeah. I mean, I can definitely say I'm not good at eliminating bad habits. It's constant work, but mm-hmm. I know that it's constant work for me. And I think what that ultimately comes down to is it, is it says for me, when I'm trying to eliminate a bad habit, and I find myself in the habit again, mm-hmm. I now feel comfortable that I, I don't have to beat myself up for being in the habit again. I can say, uh-oh, I'm here in the bad habit again. All right, we, we knew this might come about. Let's not take the time to beat myself up for being in the bad habit again, because that doesn't get anybody anywhere, quite frankly. Right. And instead, let's just move forward in a positive way from it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that just kind of circles back around to build up your own self-confidence. So the way that I like to operate is you take that element of, yeah, I do have some challenges of, of removing bad habits, but ultimately it leads to when I do identify something that is working and that is good, I feel more confident on just putting more energy into the thing that is good and is working and running with that at a lightning fast speed. Yeah. And then when it does kind of break down or it does get worse, I don't have to beat myself up for breaking it down or letting it break down or getting worse. I can just go, all right, well, let's just figure out how to get out of this worse situation, yeah. observe it, figure it out. And now we're back on track at a hundred miles an hour again, <laughs> or in the case of Hyperloop, a 700 miles an hour, you know? <laughs> you, do you, I mean, people refer to that as like the flow state and things like that, mm-hmm. where once you're out of it, it's like stepping out of the Hyperloop. You're like, it is. Damn it. Like, I'm just so static right now. How do yeah. I get that momentum back? Yeah, up? yeah absolutely. Uh, I've done a, a lot of meditation recently. And for myself, I kind of, I put that kind of flow state uh, recently into three different categories for myself. Um, you know, so that flow state is that is that mode of like creativity and receiving and you're feeling like everything's clicking at once. And, mm-hmm. you know, there's all sorts of names for it, you know, like connecting to source energy or, you know, you can use God in that in that position of the wording or whatever. Um, but in a lot of the meditations that I've been doing, a lot of the, the stuff in, internally that I've been working on over the past couple of months, I've been looking at that flow state from like three different ways of getting there. 
And the first way that I've seen that I can get there and I can feel it. And I broke it up into these three ways because when you feel that flow state, I was observant to it and I was like, man, I like this flow state. How can I get there more often? And one of the first steps was identifying that some of those times in that flow state felt a little bit different than one another. You know, like sometimes you're jamming on something and you're like, but I could do something more. And you're like, not sure what the more is. And then you become fixated on the more and then it all kind of falls apart. So for me personally, I've, I've looked at it and I can see that I can get to those flow states typically in three different ways. The first one is when I feel a lot of joy, right? And that's like your typical societal stuff, right? So we can say right now we're in your dope garage. It's got all your cool stuff. It's got your beer on the wall. It's got the sound deadening. It's got the recording equipment all set up. It was super effortless and easy for us to walk in here, record, we're doing it, right? Mm-hmm. And that's like how you can fill up your joyful cup, right? everything's easy, joyful. I've got the stuff. I'm doing the things, you know, like human beings are moving in progress. Right. (laughs) And that's, that's one way to get to that flow state. And then usually I get into that flow state and I'm like, okay, this is great. And then it kind of peters out and I would feel like there's something more. For me, the next step in searching for that something more was I could see that I was filled up with joy. The next thing that I needed to be filled up a little bit more with was love and compassion, specifically love and compassion for another person and for myself. And the myself part was like the big hurdle that I really needed to work mm-hmm. on uh, personally. So I'm feeling I'm feeling flowy with the joyfulness and now I'm looking to connect on that love angle. So now we can say, okay, I'm feeling, feeling in that flow on joy. Now what's the next step? Well, the next step is right now we're having a great conversation. So I'm feeling that kind of like connectedness with another person and mm-hmm. we're having that effortless conversation. I feel good about myself and what I'm saying because I'm talking about myself. Everyone feels good talking about themselves. <laughs> So that's an easy win and checkbox in that in that column. You're also feeling a lot of love for your dog that's walking around, you know, so you're getting that practice of exchanging that mm-hmm. that kind of love energy. Yeah. And that kind of takes you to the next state. You're like, okay, cool. I've got all the podcast equipment set up. I'm doing the thing. I'm feeling good on joy. Now I'm feeling good on love. It's kind of like the same thing with improv. You're in that state of I could throw something out there and I don't have to worry about failure. And now you're you're yeah, really yeah. jamming and really feeling good. And then I got to that spot and I'm like, okay, but it feels like there's something more right and there's something more that i really identified was the next step after filling up the joy and the love was to fill up the spirit cup right and spirit could be you know people use the word for god or connecting or basically the way i like to describe it is just your connection to everything else so now we could say recording a podcast we know that this is going to get sent out to a lot of people and they're going to listen to it and they're going to enjoy it and some of these parts and segments are going to resonate with them and they're going to feel good about that and right now when we're talking about it, you know that that feeling is out there and that someone out there is going to get that good feeling and it makes you feel good. And you're like, yeah, I'm doing it. You know, like <laughs> I'm making a positive impact on the world. The Dalai Lama often likes to equate that, you know, people get their most enjoyment and fulfillment out of not only helping others, but helping the most amount of people that you can. Mm-hmm. And that's like, so now that's the third element of the flow state that I'm chasing. So it's like, I'm filling up the joy cup with all my pan- tangible things around me, filling up the love cup for myself and others. And now I get to move on to this spiritual cup where it's like I'm sending out ideas that ultimately help myself, but help everyone else in the community around me. And that's kind of like these flow states that I get into when when I'm doing all this design work and thinking about stuff is how can we go from one aspect to the other? And you can really apply it to just about anything. So I like to apply that to experience design. So experience design, how can you fill up a joy cup and a love cup and a, and a spiritual cup with someone going to an event, right? Mm-hmm. The, the joy cup could be filled up by easy parking, cheap tickets, you know, like being able to invite your friends. 
the love cup could be like you know when you go to some events and they're just managed horribly and you're like this is terrible there's a line for the food and like the you know it doesn't feel like we're in a real community or or vibing together or at a comedy show when just everyone in the audience just hates themselves and one another right yeah but then you go to a comedy show where everyone goes there and they're friends with the performer and they're all like yeah we're feeling good you know we're all jamming on that that love environment yeah then the next day that you would want to look in that comedy show is the community is that spiritual aspect which is typically invoked by the comedians actually interacting with the audience because the audience doesn't want to just sit there and receive comedy they want to feel like they're part of the comedy and feeling like they're part of a once in a lifetime show which they are and once you hit on all three of those elements then that's when you get your best shows because the performers are jamming off the energy of the audience even the people owning the place are feeling good about the people (laughs) that are there enjoying everything and that's when you walk you know you've had those nights you walk out of a show and you're just like yeah, everything clicked. That was great. You know, everything was operating on on the right levels. Yeah, humanity having that moment where you do feel like, and it's one, there's a book I read called The Silent Pulse, which I think people that are more secular and kind of like, well, it's only what you can prove, mm-hmm. would say there's no way. But every, every performer will tell you, like, you can just feel it. You just yeah. know... Like everyone's collective energy in the room, you can feel it. And so, and I notice it more, I think, notice it early on when you do something to disrupt it. Yes. You feel it and then you like acknowledge it just to yourself subconsciously yeah. like, whoa, this is, and then you can almost feel the energy go. <laughs> like, Absolutely. Oh, damn it, I shouldn't have acknowledged it. A lot of it. people like to call that specific interaction shaking the snow globe, right? Imagine oh, you have yeah, a snow yeah. globe and you're like, let's see what happened if I shake it and rattle it and you see yeah, all the yeah. snow fill up. So for me, I would just ask you when you're feeling those moments of that inspiration, feel confident that you are correct in identifying that and feeling that. Mm -hmm. And I think we're at a point right now where you'll see, like I'm reading a lot of books and I think there's a lot more books and people talking about this coming out. But I think overall our scientific method as a whole needs a revision, like a version Mm 2.0. Because a scientific method that's the fundamentals of science you know, in our culture is based upon removing the variability. So you can test something in isolation and retest it and, and reprove that that something is correct. Mm-hmm. But ultimately, we're in a world where everything is interconnected and everything is dependent on some th- little weave and tendril touching it in one form or another. And the stuff that we're really trying to learn, uh, you know, with science is unfortunately getting to the point where you can't remove it from all the sorts of variability. And the scientific community as a whole is very cautious of those types of things that are very influenced on these, all these random variables as a whole. And they don't want to, they don't want to uncover it. To interject quickly with that, um, this guy, Dave Aveline was on the show and he works for the cold atom laboratory. So they're putting like potassium on this international space station, frozen like close to zero Kelvin and adding some helium or no hydrogen nope potassium sorry yeah and then free you know just watching like can we freeze this and see subatomic interactions and yet the way they introduce it time by it's there are variables in that like that sort of environment where there it's deep space right and absolutely freezing temperatures still like ah there's still variables right so to your point like it's virtually impossible absolutely absolutely so we're we're getting to a point where i think it's the same thing that, that i'm kind of saying is like if you feel that something is good for you and it you feel that it's not hurting you or others just feel good about that you acknowledge that that works for you go back to our example of not wearing shoes for for a while, (laughs) go, just go and do that. Right. You don't need a scientific study to prove the benefits of not wearing shoes. You are the study. You are the one that's feeling good and going about and doing that. So do it. Right. Uh Same thing with a live show. If you're in a live show and you're like, man, everything is clicking. 
look at it. Why is it clicking? Is it because the bartender is the right bartender and is laughing along with you? That way they're serving it up faster. Yeah. Is it that there's enough parking outside because, you know, for whatever reason, but now you can start to put in all of these little details to encourage that type of feeling more often, mm-hmm. that type that more type of feeling more often. And you also conversely, since you're relying on a lot of variables when you don't get it right, don't beat yourself up for not getting it right. You're just on the path for, for, <laughs> for eventually getting it right. I like it, man. I think it's a really, um, I tend to, I enjoy it, but I also kind of like it from the future. If I look back on that period, yeah. that was a great period, almost like unaware of what I did. Yeah. Because then I think I was the least mindful and I was just being me, just doing yeah. it. And I think that the taking off your shoes is such an interesting one because I think it goes to, well, what is it to be alive? Have, and right. like growing out your hair, growing a beard, wearing right. different clothes, yeah. wearing no shoes, just anything to just for whatever reason to do it. You yeah. don't have to even have a specific reason. Just like, do I always have to do this? Cause I was sort of raised to do that. Or right. I see other people doing it. I right. All that stuff folds into me in a weird way of just like, how do you, how do you decide what a great life is? Right. And I think first to decide what a great life is, is you've got to feel comfortable feeling great. <laughs> you know, you've got to, you've got to really understand when do I feel great? And mm-hmm. sometimes that's hard, you know, like sometimes you feel great and you go outside and you're feeling great for doing something silly or happy or fun and you feel shame, you know, you feel like you got to take a picture and post it to Instagram, which can deteriorate the moment. Or, yeah. you know, for me, I'm a, I, I like shooting photos, so I'm kind of the opposite of if I'm feeling great. And then I add in the photography element that's just like level up, you know, to the, <laughs> to the next level of it. But, it. but it comes down to do you feel comfortable in that moment doing it? So I guess to go back to that, that photography element, imagine you're out with your friends, you're feeling really great. You know that you're feeling great. You know that you like taking pictures when you're feeling great from that space. So I whip out a camera. Suddenly, five people around me feel uncomfortable because now they're being photographed and they're like reacting to the the variable that I dropped in the pond, which is which is the camera element, right? Yeah. For me, I liked I I practice a little bit of saying, "Hey, me taking out a camera did not hurt you." Right. Like there's this camera being out does not cause physical pain or, or ailments to you. What it is, is it's your own personal reaction to a camera being taken out and your longstanding history with cameras that that makes you feel uncomfortable in that situation. So even in that mindset, that again reflects back internally on me to say, do I feel better about taking out that camera in that moment? Because I know I will feel even better that I'm happy and I can take a picture of this moment. And I go, yes, I will feel better. So I won't feel bad if you get a little bit uncomfortable with the camera suddenly being out, because I also have the knowledge of as I start shooting photos, I become really personal with people and I'm going to show you the photo that I took of you and you're going to look great and you're going to be happy and you're going to be feeling really great after (laughs) you get one of the best photos you have of yourself in this moment. Mm -hmm. And that's going to overcome this anxiety and all that comes down back to is me by saying, I know this is a good time to take out a picture. I know when I take the picture, you're going to love it. We're going to, it's going to lead us to the next great thing that we're going to do. We just have to overcome this moment of social anxiety, <laughs> you know, of being the person taking out a yeah. camera in public. And that all just comes down to me being a little bit more aware of what I find is joyous and how it interacts with others and just confidently, you know, moving, moving forward down this path. Nice. Yeah. Well, you won't believe this, but this sped by so quickly, (laughs) but I still have more things I want to ask you if we want to take a quick little break and then I want to get into more of like the, the, the tech itself, the tech itself a little bit. I want to see how that intertwines with what we just talked about. Cause I think we're, yeah, anyway. Okay. (laughs) 
That was Ben Ellis, and thanks again to Jeremy Ross for setting that up. Ben has an Instagram called Ben Something New, and a website as well, and uh, truly a fascinating character, as you got a glimpse in. That just flew by. Part two, we really get into a little bit more of the tech, but also continuation of his philosophy on life, which I think is a great one. Um, thanks to all of you for the nice um, emails and notes and things like that, little digital correspondences. I'm feeling much better. The show, hopefully get back on track in a more routine way. I'm starting to bank some episodes, so uh, no more long gaps. I apologize for that. Hopefully you're able to uh, make it through okay and that you didn't leave and find a new podcast to fill in its place. And if you did, you're not hearing this, so that's fine anyway. Thanks again to Ben. And thanks to those of you who support the show on Patreon. It really makes things like uh, just hosting the show, but also music and beer and all of the tech stuff that go, goes into it makes it a lot easier. So thank you for that. You can f- find it at uh, Patreon slash David Huntsberger. And you can follow the show on Twitter, space underscore cave, or visit thespacecave.com if you'd like to correspond and suggest beers or guests or anything else. Music, perhaps. This song... I think you'll like it's a band um, I've been listening to a lot lately they're from right here in LA and I like them they're called Film School and this song is called Crush It talk to you later thanks for stopping by the Space Cave <laughs> <laughs>